Welcome to the Crowdmakers, inside the C-suite of sports and entertainment, the definitive podcast on the inner workings of the business side of professional sports, concerts, and live events. These are the people that are shaping the new landscape of the industry, the executives that are creating the new paradigm for live entertainment. These are the inside conversations you won't hear anywhere else. These are the Crowdmakers. Support for the Crowdmakers comes from ISBI 360, the digital training network that uses micro-learning and spaced repetition to form new habits of success in sales, service, leadership, and more. Created by sports and entertainment industry experts for the industry. Learn more at ISBI360.com. And now, here's your host for the Crowdmakers, Bill Gertine. Welcome to the Crowdmakers. I'm Bill Gertin once again, and with me is a very special guest. We have Kathy Carter with us. She is CEO of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Properties and also Chief Revenue Officer of LA28, two giant jobs rolled into one. Kathy, thank you so much for stopping by at the Crowdmakers. You bet. Thanks for having me. You know, I ask each guest as we start what they've been doing to better themselves in the pandemic. If there's a habit that they've started, something they started reading, a Peloton coach they have a crush on, those sorts of things. Anything going on in your world since the pandemic that you've started like that? Well, I don't know if started is the right uh, part, but definitely committed to even more than perhaps I had pre, pre-pandemic. So I'm definitely working out or trying to work out every single morning. Uh, and I'd say that's both for my physical, but probably more so for my mental well-being. And, uh, and I would say I'm definitely a COVID cooker now. Uh, I have cooked probably four to five nights a week uh, during the pandemic. And uh, I would say I even enjoy uh, some of the different recipes and just the, therape- the therapy of cooking after a long day of, of work. I can see that. Any special dishes that you've, cre- uh, you've discovered? Any special spice that you discovered you really like? You know, I'm willing to try anything, which doesn't mean it always turns out as it looks in some of the recipes, but I definitely have been a bit more Asian inspired. So some Thai and perhaps even uh, Indian more just because the spices are so different than what I, what I used to, to do with just sort of the, the easier cooking that I used to do, but, uh, but more Thai inspired, I'd say has been sort of the, the go-to interesting space I've been sort of playing in. I think all of us can say we're a little more adventurous now than when we first started about a year ago. Absolutely. <laughs> Great. Well, so most everyone in sports can tell you exactly where they were on that day in March last year, where they first learned that things were going to be shut down. Where were you at that moment and, and what was the situation for you? Well, I, I remember it almost like it was yesterday. Cause I think it was probably one of the last times I was out to dinner uh, with a group of people. And so it was in New York city when And for me, when I realized things were actually going to shut down was uh, when the NBA pulled the teams off the court. Uh, and so that fateful night that was, gosh, it was, I don't even know what the date was, was March 12th or uh, 13th or what have you. But, you know, then we all say, I think we all look at March 14th as the day the music stopped. But for me, it was actually at that dinner when the NBA canceled the game that you knew and my phone started to, to blow up with notes about the fact that it was COVID and uh, and I, I knew from that moment forward that uh, at least what I thought was going to be a short period of time was going to be a very difficult and different period of time. Indeed. Well, you're leading the work now of the official joint venture between the U.S. Olympic Committee and LA 2028, and you also serve as Chief Revenue Officer of LA 2028, where your job, among many other things, is to bring in more than $5 billion, with a B, dollars 
into the Los Angeles Olympic door between sponsorships and consumer products, ticket sales and hospitality. Where does one start on an enormous 10-year task like that? Take us through what the start of that timeline looked like, maybe your first day on the job and, and how it's looking so far. Uh, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a daunting task if you think about it in the macro. But if you think about it day in and day out, um, it doesn't seem as, as much of a hill to climb because it really truly is made up of a number of parts. Uh, and so I'm about just a, almost two and a half years into the journey. Um, I started in October of 2018. Uh, and so the first thing was to just understand where the, where, what, what we had in front of us, meaning what were all the rights and what was the ecosystem that we were dealing with. And then slowly but surely build a team of people and put the right systems in place. And I'd say, you know, two and a half years in, um, you know, we have built an unbelievable group uh, of teammates, uh, whether that's in sponsorship, whether that's in consumer products, whether that's in ticketing and hospitality, and whether that's with the organizing committee and in all the business operations. And, and I'd say today, we actually have a far greater um, visible thought about what 2028 is going to look like and actually how and what the journey is to get there. Now, whatever we have con concepted and whatever we think about today, inevitably, when we look back in 2029 and think back to those COVID days of 2021, uh, that will be very small relative to, I think, what we will eventually uh, accomplish. But today, we've got a real commitment to what we have to do. And we know that it's just the start of the journey in terms of creating opportunities for uh, whether it's sponsors or licensees or uh, even what we're trying to think about relative to hospitality along the way. So we, we think we've got a good, uh, good plan um, and, uh, and how we're going to get to those big, big numbers that you mentioned. And, uh, but you just got to put one foot in front of the other. Unfortunately, I've done an awful lot of this and the team of people has also done it. And so we're having a lot of fun uh, sort of creating new opportunities and thinking about things differently, which is one of the great mottos we have at LA 28. What parts of that plan had to be scrapped once you figured that COVID was a real tragedy and was going to be worldwide and, and perhaps longer than simply 2020 and, and 2021? Well, actually, I don't think we've had to scrap anything other than obviously with the idea of Tokyo being postponed, we had to transition plans from 2020 to 2021. And I'm not sure that the scale of what we had originally thought 2020 would look like will be the same as what, what will actually transpire in 2021. But, you know, we have the benefit of hosting the games in 28, which means today we're not, um, we don't have to deal with ticket sales today or putting, you know, fans in stadiums today. Uh, and so, you know, there's not a day that goes by that we're not um, thankful that we've got the runway that we do. But we're also keenly uh, looking at what the, the organizers in Tokyo are having to do, or even in Beijing for the Winter Games in 2022, or what Paris is dealing with in 24, as things we must start to in integrate into our thinking, into our plans, and into what ultimately we want to deliver by 28. So scrapping plans, perhaps not as much as really trying to understand the impact. I mean, obviously, we had to scrap getting into the office and working together every day, but it's actually forced us to communicate more effectively uh, and pay a lot of attention to communication. So uh, we're very fortunate in that way, but, um, but it's definitely slowed down the pace with which we were operating in some areas of our business, but in other areas, it's, uh, it's picked up. And so it's a, I'd say on balance, we're probably at the same pace of play we might've been otherwise. 
you talked about the runway that you had, and you really had an unprecedented 10-year time span to be able to do this because the IOC decided to award 24's summer games to Paris and to award Los Angeles the games in 2028 at the very same time. It's really given you this four-year runway that nobody else has really had or perhaps you hadn't expected. What advantage has that kind of lead time given you and your team, especially on the sponsorship side? Well, we have more uh, games to sell as a part of our, and and truthfully, our rights period, and I use that somewhat uh, loosely, our rights period began in 2021. So it really just started in January. So we were able to build and, and really come up with how, to, how and what the value proposition would be for uh, commercial partners well before the clock truly started ticking for us. But, but when I take a step back from that beyond just how it affects sponsorship, um, for us, I think there are two main advantages that we have as we think about hosting the games in 28. Number one is, as you as you mentioned, we have a lot more time than other than other or in any other organizers ever had. And so, part of our thinking is how do we then use that to our advantage, both building strategic plans and ultimately what are the moonshot ideas of what we want to try to to do to leave the movement Paralympic and Olympic movements better than we found it. But number two, we also don't have to build anything. And so most organizing committees, you know, when they win the games, they also have municipal projects that perhaps a stadium or an athlete village. And for us, we don't have any of those things. And so we've got both the benefit of time and, uh, and resources in Los Angeles between uh, UCLA and USC, uh, two universe, world-class universities with world-class athletic facilities, 10 miles apart. Um, and all of the stadiums and arenas and just infrastructure that Los Angeles has, we're games ready now. So it's really uh, for us, how do we actually create um, a new model and a new blueprint for how the Olympic games can be hosted? And for us in LA, this will be the first time that we actually host Paralympic games uh, because those weren't hosted in 1984. And so how do we truly use the Paralympics and put a stamp on, on that third largest event on the planet uh, and create an opportunity to have dialogue around differently abled people who do amazing things and start to normalize the idea that Paralympians or people with disabilities um, actually can, can accomplish unbelievable things. We just have to continue to open the doors of opportunity for them. Really amazing that you have both of those and perhaps hasn't happened in the past where the Paralympic Games have been really emphasized as much. How much of that emphasis on those games is due to the awakening of the world to those that need to be included more often? Yeah, you know, I think it's one of the great things about the Paralympics. And we've seen that certainly, I think London did an unbelievable job of sort of setting the bar uh, with how and what they did around the Paralympic Games obviously the Olympics were, were wonderful, but I think they really did set a bar. I'm, I'm optimistic and looking forward to seeing what the Japanese do. Um, you know, I think obviously somewhat tempered uh, as a result of COVID, but I still believe that they will do, uh, you know, some, some terrific things to identify and illustrate uh, the value of the Paralympics. And so for us, we look at all of that and say, that's just a precursor to what we hope to be able to do. Uh, and, and really, to, I think there is, a you said, an awakening perhaps around this concept of not just um, inclusivity or diversity and inclusion and broaden that out both in terms of what we're dealing with today in terms of um, awareness. And I think that extends as well to the Paralympics. So between the Olympics, which uh, just by its very, very nature is this 
equal playing field between women and men and size of, or, or small, or big, or uh, different uh, religious backgrounds or socioeconomic backgrounds. And then also the Paralympics, which is around differently abled athletes. And I just think we've got, we'll have a, a period of time in Los Angeles to highlight all of the things about society and about our world that can be good with the backdrop of athletes performing at this unbelievable level uh, to showcase um, that we're all in it together. What a great opportunity for us to show that to not only our U.S. friends, but the world. We agree. That's great. You have said in interviews before that this event in 2028 is bigger than the ability to cut through the clutter for sponsors, as a sponsorship person might say. But it's giving people a reason to care. What did you mean by that? Well, it's kind of what I was just talking about. It's actually the most authentic display of equality. Uh, and of, of inclusion that we see. I mean, we often talk about the United States of women when it comes to our, US, our women's uh, uh, participating athletes and how successful they are just as a pure uh, subset, if you will, of countries. And uh, that is not just the most powerful sports marketing platform for women. It is the most powerful platform for women about what we can do and in a world where certainly from, from a female perspective, let alone uh, racial or uh, all types of, of, of religion and, and people, it just is this incredible opportunity to showcase what's good in the world. And I think that's something that, uh, it's not about putting your logo on something, it's about standing for something. Well, you have obviously made a huge difference in the world of sports as a senior executive woman. You've been recognized numerous times as a, a true leader. You're a recipient of the Women in Sports and Event Women of the Year Award. You're a two-time winner of SBJ's 40 Under 40, the Forbes list of the most powerful women in sports. And just a few years ago, you became one of the first women candidates in the final group of eight for the job of president of the U.S. Soccer Federation. Now, obviously, it was given to somebody else, but Given the, the many barriers and glass ceilings that have been broken by women and minorities here between the last few years, do you ever wonder if it would be a different story if that job would have opened up today? Well, you know, I, I don't tend to look back or even say shoulda, coulda, woulda. Um, I think our role as, as people is to uh, walk forward and to leave it better than we found it. And whether that is, uh, whether it's Kamala Harris, our vice president, who is showing people that if you can see it, you can be it. I mean, those are powerful images, or it is Ibtahaj Muhammad, uh, a U.S. fencer who was the first American athlete to actually compete in the Olympic Games in a, in a hajib. Um, it, all of it, is, um, it are things that I think are a part of the future. And so as women, as minorities, as, you know, as people, it's not about what was, it's about what is. And I think it's all of our responsibility to participate in the future and make it better for everyone. And so I don't think about it as what, what, would, have, what would have happened had I come at a different time, because that's not realistic for me. And so I feel like I'm contributing to the future and, and I'm very proud of the opportunity that I've been given to do that. Um, and I take the responsibility pretty, pretty uh, significant. I think it's pretty significant responsibility. Uh, indeed it is. Well, you've been in front really as a champion of diversity and inclusion and a, a true model, I think, for women's advocacy in sports. 
when you look at the change that's taking place, what are you most frustrated about that isn't moving as fast as you'd like? There's been a lot of things that have happened positively, but is there something that's frustrated you that, gosh, just really needs to, to change perhaps faster than you've seen? Well, I, I will say that there is still a, there's still unconscious bias. I mean, we just saw with the, uh, the head of the Tokyo Organizing Committee, the former prime minister of Japan, who had some rather disparaging remarks about women in leadership positions, uh, which I think is unfortunate. And um, I think the difference though, is while those um, ideas are perhaps still in place, I mean, we're seeing that even in our own country, not just around women, but just in terms of um, different points of view is that uh, society isn't willing to accept all of that any longer and therefore it's not okay. Um, and I think we'll see that transpire over the course of the next number of days uh, in this particular instance with what's happening in Japan. But more importantly, am I frustrated by that? Sure, in the moment I'm frustrated by it, but I think I'm conditioned to also look at the, and I'm just a glass is half full person. So I look at it more to say uh, that the dialogue is different today than it was 10 years ago. Uh, than it was 20 years ago. And so there's progress being made. There really is progress being made. It doesn't happen as fast as any of us ever want it to be. Uh, so you actually have to zoom out every once in a while and recognize it, it's, uh, it's happening. And, but change doesn't happen overnight. So you just have to keep the faith. And keep on keeping on a little at a time as you are. That's great. Well, you are a college soccer athlete yourself going back a few years at William & Mary. Uh, you jumped right into the business of soccer as manager of partnership marketing for the 1994 World Cup here in the U.S., which was a big deal, really kind of almost introducing Americans to what soccer in the world really was, because at that time, it was a real fledgling operation here, U.S. soccer. What were some lessons that you learned or things that you took away from that early experience that you're using perhaps in this new role? You know, I think the idea of an organizing committee, I mean, obviously, having worked on the World Cup in 1994, you realize a little bit of what it takes to put on an event like that. Now, I was young and just starting out in my career. And so uh, this is now at a different level and different scale, and I'm in a different position. But, uh, you know, I, I do think that having the tenacity to uh, persevere in the sport of soccer, as as we all did back in the you know, early to mid to late 90s, as we were then launching Major League Soccer on the heels of the World Cup, uh, you know, we had to have some tenacity of and, and conviction that we could make it through those tough times. And I'm very proud of the group that was there and ultimately all those that participated along the way for the league to now, albeit in COVID on the, 20, on the eve of its 26th season with, um, if you had asked anyone 25 years ago, they never would have thought that it would have achieved the stature or the status. Uh, so all of that, not just the World Cup and the organizing committee experience, but also the startup mentality that we took into the development of the sport of soccer for decades, um, all of it is, uh, has been surprisingly and unsurprisingly uh, great, uh, great um, learnings for me in terms of what we're doing now. Well, you came from Soccer United Marketing, where, of course, you spent the past 15 years of your career prior to your move into the Olympics, first as EVP, and then you were president of some for eight years through 2018. I mean, that was a time where soccer really came of age here in the U.S. You really grew it to a, what is today a multi-billion dollar powerhouse and respected around the world. From your vantage point, 
What were those key things that you saw happen during your tenure that brought soccer to that major popularity from when you knew it in 1994? You know, I wish it was um, as easy as saying there were a couple of moments, but honestly, I feel as if um, the staying power that we had was probably our greatest asset. Now, that was certainly uh, supported by some incredibly key owners in the league, those being certainly, you know, Phil Anschutz, Robert Kraft, Lamar Hunt, and the Hunt family. Uh, they were really, I would say, the godfathers, if you will, of American soccer as it exists today. And their willingness to commit economically time and time again really was what kept us in the game while the, the, uh, during the trough of the tough periods, if you will. Um, but the start of Soccer United Marketing, which was the aggregation of all the commercial rights of the sport in North America, key, key component of, of the economic development of the league. And then ultimately what, um, what we did and what, our cl- what the clubs had, had done to really start to delve into player development. We're seeing that today from the league, just in terms of the quality of the, of the athletes, quality of the players coming through the system and ultimately uh, how the teams are performing. But you know, honestly, there wasn't a moment, but rather a lot of moments that were probably smaller in the eye of uh, the beholder. But uh, but when you look back on it, um, just the, the the ability to persevere and to 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 make make it through those difficult times uh, is uh, is what was really most important. We'll be back for the second half right after this. Hi, this is Bill Gertine. I've been training the ticket sales departments of sports and entertainment for almost 20 years, and I love what I do. But everywhere I went, the story was always the same. We loved what you did. You got us fired up. But after a while, we kind of lost the spark, and we went back to the same old, same old. Well, not anymore. ISBI 360 is the first and only digital training network created exclusively for the specific long-term career needs of sports and entertainment professionals. Our seven different unique certification programs include the fundamentals of success in the industry like ticket sales, sponsorships, social media, customer service, and leadership, all trained by industry experts like Brett Zalaski, Debbie Nolan, Misha Scher, and Seth Rabinowitz. ISBI 360 uses a unique four-stage learning process, including cutting-edge micro-learning videos, live recorded role plays, live coaching from industry experts, and an ongoing reinforcement program to make sure the learning sticks and forms the habits that your people need to grow and excel faster. Check out the two-minute demo at isbi360.com slash demo. That's isbi360.com slash demo. Building a better team starts with better training. Check out what's different about ISBI 360 today. You mentioned a few names, the Anschutz and, and Hunts and many others that, that had come along the way, really helping you break down some of those barriers and move the, the sport of soccer forward. Most people in your position have had those mentors or those guides along the way that have helped them get to where they are today. I think many people would credit you as being a mentor to them. Who was it for you if there were some people that you could look back at and say, gosh, this is somebody that I really looked up to and was able to guide me and coach me along the way, who would those have been for you? Yeah, no, I've been very fortunate, not just to have mentors, but to have sponsors uh, along the way. And, uh, you know, whether it was early on in my career, uh, Randy Bernstein, um, who was my first boss at the World Cup Organizing Committee, uh, Alan Rothenberg, who has remained, I've remained close to, I, I was a kid when I started and he was running the the World Cup, 
um, but ultimately um, uh, he has been around my and my orbit and I've orbited him, I guess, for the last 25, 30 years. Uh, at the time, very early on, a woman by the name of Joanne Klanowski was uh, always there with a helping hand. And it kind of went on from there. I mean, uh, your partner, Doug Quinn, I would consider not just a, a close friend, but a, and colleague, but also a mentor at the time I worked with him. And so, you know, I've just been very fortunate. I've had a lot of people along the way. And there's many more who I haven't, haven't commented on uh, that uh, I've been very fortunate to have folks uh, Don Garber, the commissioner of Major League Soccer, you know, clearly just people who um, have have really just helped me, um, but also helped my career. And uh, I've been fortunate to have those type of people enter my life and they don't leave once uh, once once they're in my world. I do my best. I do everything I can to keep them in it. There are many young women perhaps listening to this thinking, gosh, Kathy Carter's done such a good job at what she's doing. And I would like to be one of those perhaps shining lights as well to others and, and perhaps influence the generation behind me. This is what they may be saying to themselves. What advice might you give to them that would help others to climb those mountains that perhaps you have already climbed and are now looking down on? Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question. And it's one I, I, I think... Uh, you don't start out thinking you're going to be in this position 25 or 30 years later. And so I think it is more about establishing uh, what are your morals, your ethics, what is your North Star individually, and, and paying attention to that throughout the course of your career and doing right by people, doing right by uh, in the business. And over time, that consistency, I think, leads to uh, relationships and leads to hopefully respect and ultimately uh, to opportunities at which point you now start to perhaps have an impact on the next generation. But I never really looked at it that way. Uh, and I don't know that I ever thought about it in that sense, but I just always said, you know, how do, how do I make sure every day I, I show up and I give it my best? And how do I make sure that I work hard and deliver always? I mean, simple things like do what I say I'm going to do and Look, we all screw up, but then admit when you screw up and move on. And I don't know. I, I wish there was a magic magic sauce on that. I, it's just I, I consider myself incredibly lucky uh, to have had the opportunities that I've had, uh, but I've worked really hard at them too. It's uh, good to hear. So we've talked already about diversity and inclusion and opportunity. These pieces being very important to you as you plan these Olympic Games and Paralympic Games. The LA twenty eight emblem project was one of those examples that you were really passionate about going into your role here. Tell us about how that came about and how all those different logo representations came to be and, and, and what that symbolizes to you. Yeah, well, you know, you think about uh, Los Angeles and LA is a, uh, is a, is made up of, it's a sum of its parts. Uh, and therefore suggesting that there is only one LA was something we really struggled with to think, how do you capture the spirit of LA and a single emblem, a single thing. And, uh, and that's kind of where this all came together, which was this idea that there really is no one LA. Um, and so that sort of was the spark of the idea. And then when you start to think about it's everyone's story and these are everyone's games and how and what can we do to co-create the experience that people will ultimately have with, uh, with what we are gonna do. Uh, and then it just sort of rolled from there. And as we brought, whether it was artists or athletes or activists or celebrities or any number of people, 
the idea of them telling their story, their connection with sport, with the Olympics, with the Paralympics through their lens and their A, it just sort of, it sort of just felt right. And it became their launch about us, not our launch using them. And it was just, it sort of worked for us. And I think we'll continue to do so. will allow us to, to constantly reinvent uh, over the course of the next eight years, which I think is something that's critically important when you think about Los Angeles, uh, because you can be anybody you want to be in LA. And so we want to make sure that we represent any one of those ideas. Well, along those same lines, you've been quoted as saying you really want to reimagine what the Olympics can and should be. In what other ways will we see perhaps at least discussion of LA 28 really reimagining the way Olympics are run? Are we going to see a Super Mario Kart Olympic competition? What 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 are you thinking? Yeah, well, we're still early in the phase there. I think uh, you know we we're thinking both how do we change the the game, but but a lot of what we're thinking about is how to evolve the experience that the athletes have when they come to Los Angeles. How do we evolve the the way the consumer, the fan, uh, the stakeholder, the partner? How do they engage with the games? Whether that be through technology, whether that be through reimagining the experience, creating a, a different type of involvement. So we're still in the early phases of that. You know, how do we? make sure that we leave uh, LA better than we found it, you know, talk about sustainability. Um, so there's a lot of things where, where we are, you know, obviously we want to, we, we are committed and are, are investing in youth sports in Los Angeles. Uh, we have uh, and are committed to spending uh, $160 million in youth sports. And so uh, there's a lot of things we're in the process of sort of, of really sort of defining those key moments about when we look back, what will we be known for other than just hosting the games, which in and of itself is a pretty big hill to the climb. Sure. I don't know if there were one or two things that would be really earth shattering that you might share with us that I, I don't know if you can do that necessarily. Uh, eight at this years point. out. It's eight years out. It's too early to let all okay. that, to let those all secrets right. out I yet. I thought there might be some fun stuff you could uh, to lay on us to just this reimagining thing. Cause I think it's with something as historic as the Olympics have, some might look at your process of reimagining as almost degrading the games or perhaps looking at it in a way that shouldn't be looked at. The Greco-Roman wrestling always ought to be Greco-Roman wrestling or whatever else you're talking about. Have you had some pushback from people who are more traditionalists? Yeah, no, I don't think we're trying to change the sport, the integrity of sport. That's not our intention. But can we find a way to deliver it uh, and deliver a platform that's different than um, perhaps running the marathon exactly the way it's been run? Now, that doesn't mean that changes the quality or the experience, but are there ways for us to feature athletes in a way perhaps they haven't before? So you won't see us uh, try to, uh, to change the game. Like to us, the game is that's table stakes. It's what do we do with the pageantry that goes around it? That's the part that I think we want to reimagine. Very good. Have athletes felt as though they were not necessarily treated as well in the past? That was something I had not heard as a storyline. It, it, it seemed like that was one of the things you wanted to be sure that was reimagined in, in the 28 vision. Have, have there been reports or, or have there been some athletes that have felt not marginalized, but, but perhaps somewhat of an afterthought in the Olympic Games? No, I don't, I don't know that marginalized is the appropriate way. But if we can give athletes coming out of the Olympic or Paralympic Games... 
um, a stepping stone to whatever is next in their lives, that's a real positive from our perspective. And so, you know, what do we do as they head into LA? What do we do as they leave LA uh, to give them opportunities to, to perhaps parlay what they're doing, what they've done as athletes into the next stage of their life. And so, uh, and, and certainly being cognizant of things as, uh, as simple as making sure they have enough towels when they're at the, at the pool. I mean, there are a lot of things like that, that we want to pay attention to the little things, but also the bigger things. And so that's all a part of what we're, we're really um, keenly focused on uh, is, is how to make sure that we deliver again, what I kind of call table stakes, um, but then ultimately deliver uh, some bigger ideas around it as well. How do we give them greater opportunity? Sure. Well, as we record this, and I'll just be very blunt with everyone, this happens to be February 11th that we're recording this. Uh, Tokyo is moving forward and doing what they need to do, but that condition and that situation, of course, changes daily and weekly with the result of stuff going on. From the data you have seen recently, is it your opinion that Tokyo will happen in 21? And if not, how will that affect Paris in 24 and eventually us in 28? Yeah, no, I think Tokyo will go off. I think that, uh, I think, you know, by all accounts, everything we're hearing is that uh, they are committed to, to having the games go forward. I'm not sure we have uh, a complete line of sight as to what they will have in the stadium, uh, what kind, kind of, of, of fan experience it will be. But I, I don't think it's going to impact Paris or Los Angeles in terms of timing. I think you will see the games happen in July of 2021. Beyond the health and safety, which is, of course, the biggest storyline of everyone going forward, what are some of the other storylines in sports and entertainment that you're watching closely right now as in your position? Yeah, you know, I think the innovation happening as a result of the pandemic, I think we'll continue to see some of these things. I mean, here we are on a, uh, a Zoom call doing a podcast, whereas, you know, we used to have to get together to do certain things. I think that there's an aspect of our world that will never go back to what it was pre-COVID. And uh, I think how we can reimagine the, the, the experience of fans coming together, I think there's a real desire for people to come back. But I think there are different ways for that to happen as well. So I think it'll be very interesting to see how, how we come out of all of this and what are the new things we've learned. Is there something along those lines that you think this moment in time has given the industry a chance to do? or perhaps to be that may never come again, this pause that we've all had. Is there a window that exists that you think is now there to change or improve something right now? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think what we've seen in terms of, um, we'll see a lot of people re reinvent. They, they will have taken the moment to do things differently um, and come out of this in a stronger way. But I've been incredibly impressed by the persistence of the American athlete around um, using their platform for good. And obviously the NBA athletes, um, the NFL athletes, football players, uh, all athletes across really every sport uh, to really drive a narrative around social justice has been inspiring uh, and to create dialogue around opportunity for a better future uh, in my mind has been really, uh, they've pulled a lot of people into the, into the dialogue that I think is incredibly important for us as, as humanity to have. Very cool. Well, as I normally do with my guests, I have a, a, a battery of fill-in-the-blank questions that's kind of rapid fire that I hope you'll have fun with me on. Just the first okay. thing that comes to mind as these questions come up. Are you ready? Ready. All right. Your favorite binge watch during the pandemic? Funny enough, house. Going back old school. Cool. 
besides sports, the one thing you've missed most during COVID? Getting together for a glass of wine with friends. Amen. The board game you thought you'd never pull out of the closet again that somehow saw the light of day in 2020. It's actually been puzzles more than board games. That works. Those are in the closet too, so probably fits. Yep. Uh, the favorite musical artist you have on your workout mix? Oh, boy. I kind of just run with, uh, with Spotify and let them pick my music on the workout channel. Okay. The favorite sports team that you've never worked for? Tottenham Hotspur. Ah, good call. Uh, the sit-down restaurant that you've ordered delivery from most often in 2020? Tapo Pizza, New York City. Cool. Your favorite comedian or comedian? Bill Burr. Oh, wow. I have to look that up. A famous a favorite thing about New York City? Oh, gosh. There's a lot to say there. I'll go with, with Broadway. Very good. And favorite thing about your new home or home to be in L.A.? Beach and sunshine. Boy, coming from Chicago, I can so relate to that. The yeah. biggest hurdle you have to overcome in the next six months. Getting out of this damn house. <laughs> oh, you know, I'm going to pause just a little bit. I want to tell you about that because you've lived in New York the majority of your life, right? Uh, no, just my adult life, I'd say. The last 25 years, yeah, yeah. How difficult was it to make that mental shift to the other coast, having been in New York for a very long time? Well, you know, I've been in LA, I've been in New York, I've been in LA, I've been in New York. So LA is a, is a, is a place I've spent a lot of time and I've lived there twice. And so uh, when I say I've been in New York 25 years, it's actually been uh, with, with times in LA that I've lived there as well. So it's actually not that hard. <laughs> very good. Well, you, so you yeah. knew what you were getting into, certainly. Yes. Last question. One bold prediction that you would have for sports and entertainment going forward. We're coming back. We're coming back stronger than ever. Love that tenacity, positive attitude. I would have expected nothing less. Kathy Carter, Chief Executive Officer of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Properties and Chief Revenue Officer of LA28. Thank you so much for being a guest here on the Crowdmakers. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed the program, please like us, share us with those you know, and hit subscribe on the podcast, and we'll let you know when another new episode is dropped. Your positive comments will help keep the Crowdmakers on the air. We'd be grateful for your five-star review. Got someone you'd like to hear as a guest on the Crowdmakers? Let us know, and we'll do our best to reach out to them. Drop us a note at info at isbi360.com. That's info at isbi360.com. Support for the Crowdmakers comes from ISBI 360, the first and only digital training network for sports and entertainment professionals. Check out the two-minute demo at isbi360.com slash demo. That's isbi360.com slash demo. Building a better team starts with better training. Our chief engineer of the Crowdmakers is Ken Marinelli. Sean Quinn is our director of operations. Mark Yazowitz is the digital platform guru. And the executive producer of The Crowdmakers is Doug Quinn. I'm Bill Gertine. Until next time, thanks for listening, and so long for now. This is The Crowdmakers on the C-Suite Radio Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.